Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 299, and today's guest is Kate McCullough, co-founder and chief growth officer at New. In challenging markets like we are in right now, companies in the tech industry need to think hard about pricing of their product. Should you discount your product or think through other options like usage-based pricing or credit burndown pricing. Kate and I start our conversation about the different pricing options and the key points you really need to think about because these decisions can have a major impact in the future when it comes to things like renewals. So we cover lots of useful information for entrepreneurs here. New is the leading quote to revenue platform designed to help businesses of all sizes automate their sales and finance processes. The company recently announced a $9 million seed extension, bringing its latest round of funding to a total of $15 million. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Kate's background story and how she got her career started in marketing at Kiva.org and was later the first marketing hire at Rich Relevance and what this experience taught her her experience working in startups and building her career into leadership positions that would ultimately lead her into an operational role in venture capital at Next World Capital, what led Kate and her co-founder, Tina Kung, down the path of starting new and the details on their journey thus far and plans ahead, the emergence of RevOps and the meaning of this function at companies, advice on raising capital for diverse founders, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 a month. That's free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's fizz 20 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Kate. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because you're obviously uh, very, very busy these days building a company that has lots and lots of great use, especially for a lot of the VentureFizz audience. So we're going to talk about the core of that, but we're going to start things off with more of a snippet that is related to your company new, which is uh, if, you know, the, the economic conditions being what they are right now, if you're a SaaS company, you're probably thinking a lot about pricing, right? The market's challenging, sales cycles are longer, you know, so how should, if you're a founder of a company that is building software or SaaS, whatever, how should you think about pricing and perhaps offering discounts in this type of environment, more of a downturn? Well, you know, we did an awesome podcast on this topic, actually, with DocuSign's pricing leads, which is how do you construct your pricing such that you don't discount to hurt your, you know, error later, um, which is a big question. So discounting isn't actually the only strategy you can take right now. I think there's a lot of companies that we see that are looking at product-led growth motions to cut down on the cost of acquiring customers. Other people are dabbling in like credit burn down motions where you're doing a credit burn down and or pay as you go from a usage standpoint. So, you know, you can discount and you have to be really thoughtful about what you discount, but there's actually a lot of thought that you need to put on preemptively to be in a good place for discounting. Meaning, do you have you monetized features of bundles 
or offering such that when you discount, you can discount an aspect of it as opposed to the totality of your offering. So just slashing the total price can leave you in a bad place later on. And so is your pricing sophisticated now? That would be what I would say to entrepreneurs is like, have you made your pricing sophisticated enough for the scenario of on renewal, maybe you discount a feature as opposed to the whole bundle? Um, So there's a lot of different really thought processes and tricks. And oftentimes when you're an early stage startup, you just make your pricing really simple. And you want to keep it simple for your customers to actually understand it. But at the same time, there needs to be some strategy to say, how can we, you know, monetize aspects of it, keep it simple so that in the future on renewal or on upsell, we have some levers to pull. So that's what I would advise is what are the levers that you can pull? So there's pricing levers um, and they can be the monetization of features. Other levers are the PLG motion, adding that in that can offset, um, creating better land and expand upsells. That's another thing we hear a lot from customers. So there's a wide variety of things that you can do from a pricing strategy standpoint. And it's not just about discounting is what I would say. And you brought up a, 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 you know, a topic that made me think, and I, I, I was like, actually, that that reminds me, like there was a trend towards usage based pricing. Yep. Is that still a trend that's? Ha- like, I haven't seen it as common. I thought that was going to be like the next evolution of how SaaS companies need to price their products. Well, it depends on what your relationship with your CFO is, because there's a <laughs> predictability problem with usage depending on the model. Now, everyone was really hot on usage, and I think that there was this idea, okay, usage is going to be everything. Usage is the next subscription model. Exactly. I think that's panning out that way. What I see across our customer base is usage is an aspect of a broader offering, a broader bundle. So you have one, you know, feature or functionality that has, you know, some amount that you get with the offering, and then the rest is pay as you go or it's a usage overage model or a credit burned out. Now, the problem with usage overage means that customers don't like the lack of predictability in it because it's whatever is running through the system. It's it, you're, you're priced on what you used, but that's unpredictable. So if you're trying to budget, it's a struggle. Now, other there are other usage models. People think of usage as just being that, but there's credit burn down that's way more predictable. And actually you get the cash up front. So it's actually pretty appealing. And then there's pay-as-you-go right now, which is really appealing for low-end customers. You can actually get them on board and they can pay as they want to use your product. But again, not very predictable. So you don't usually want to hook your entire pricing model on just usage. And nobody, nobody, we very few people we encounter want to do that. You have to be a very specific type of business. Maybe you're like AWS and that actually works Mm -hmm. for your customer base and they're acclimated to that. Um, the rest of everyone tends to find it as a, a feature functionality kind of aspect of the business. And people are still very much experimenting it to, with it, but they're definitely not throwing all their, you know, everything into that bucket and saying everything's usage. It's interesting. So that like the credit burn down, like that's something I haven't heard of yet, but it certainly makes a ton of sense. Yep. You buy up front. The money is in the bank and then you use it up and then you buy more once it's depleted. Yeah. Cool. Well, very, very interesting. It's always 
I'm always curious to hear about the latest trends and how things are affecting pricing, especially in a market like this. But well, let's uh, rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Well, I grew up in the Bay Area. I was actually on the same exit as the Google headquarters. So I watched that oh. grow up as a kid. And so, yeah, I kind of have been steeped in tech since I was a kid. It's just normal. Um, so down on the peninsula. And what did you study at UC Berkeley? Study of all things history, um, oh. which I still think was the best choice, actually. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, it was it was a really neat way. It was a really stringent program, and you had to do so much research and find threads and theses within that big group of research. And it really actually trained me for what I do now, oddly. It is actually, you know, people tend to be like, oh, you have a liberal arts degree, but like actually very useful. Lots and lots of successful founders with a liberal arts degree. Totally, totally relevant and just different way of thinking and solving problems. Yeah, totally. All right. So how'd you get your career started then? How did I get my career started? I would say it was a little messy. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> a straight line through it. I, uh, I had an initial, you know, the, the force was towards international development. That's what I was really passionate about. And I had this plan of moving to DC and I was going to go out there and I was going to work for an international development consultancy. And through a matter of different networking and relationships, I stumbled on a startup called Kiva.org. And I was really fascinated with microfinance at the time. And this was before microfinance got popular. And I, I thought it was a really interesting mechanism. And in talking with the founder, Jessica Flannery, I met her at Stanford, um, I was just blown away. I was like, where do I sign up? How do I get into this? And it really changed my idea of maybe the future of how we look at that was actually going to be in tech. Maybe that was the avenue and that there was an old way of doing it versus a new way of doing it. And I wanted to be in on the new way of doing it. So I ended up working for them. And that was my first startup, actually. And it was a non-traditional startup. It was founded by LinkedIn veterans, early Google folks, but it was a nonprofit. And so it had all the bells and whistles of what you would think of a startup but then funded very, very differently. And so it was a really interesting learning exercise to see the power of the networks that the founders brought to a different space. And it started opening my eyes up to, hey, for-profit experience is really helpful um, if you want to make an impact. And so I kind of pivoted my thinking. I went away from the international dev side and said, you know what, I'm going to circle back to that once I have more of a for-profit backbone. And then that's what accelerated me through the next set of startups that I did. And so when, when I was doing some you know research for our, our conversation, so you were the first marketing hire at Rich Relevance. So, so what did that experience teach you? Because you know back when I was doing my own uh, headhunting search work, like that was a lot of what I would do. First product hire, first marketing hire, which you know some people that's a great opportunity that they can thrive at. Some people, you know, that it's they can't handle the sink or swim type of you know getting thrown into the the mix. It was definitely sink or swim. I remember <laughs> seventh employee, six guys, me in a tiny cubicle. And I, you know, the CEO was like, I need a conference booth set up three weeks from now, go. <laughs> I was 23. I'd never been to a conference in my life. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I was like, I just started making calls to people that maybe knew better. And a friend of friend of friend was like, this is what you do. This is how you do it. So it was very much sink or swim. And that was the thrill of it. Like, it's not for everyone. 
Um, so that early stage, you know, you don't know what you're doing feeling. Um, that may not be everyone's cup of tea. I love it. Like, I like that. Oh, I've never done this before. Let me get after it and figure it out. So that was exhilarating. You know, we built out a marketing team. We grew to like 150 employees. It was a great ride. And I learned a ton, but I also had to self-teach a ton, um, which is sometimes not the best process. It would have probably been better to have someone mentoring me more, but it was a lot of making mistakes and figuring it out, which was grit. Honestly, it taught me grit, if, if anything. Yeah. And that's why I was always an advocate of joining, you know, a company that, you know, obviously it's got to be a fit for you in your own career. So it's a personal decision, but when you're put into that situation, the learning curve is just astronomical. So if you can swim, it's definitely a good environment to be a part of. Yeah. And that was honestly, the other thing I learned from that experience was just an enthusiastic culture. It was a great group of people. The founders had grown up together. They came out of Stanford and they did this and everyone was gung-ho and in. And I think it was actually very progressive in terms of diversity and inclusion, actually. And so there was a lot of eye-opening things I didn't really appreciate until later looking back on it of there was so much enthusiasm and you were all rowing that boat together. And that's something that I really treasure as an experience because not every company had that level of fervor to the idea that we had and commitment from the early employees. So what'd you do next? What did I do next? Well, I went on to work for this small consulting firm, which was kind of an interesting pivot. But it had clients that were really interesting. We went and did core positioning and messaging and go-to-market analysis and sales playbooks for, I think we had OpenDNS, Good Data was a client, Yammer. And we would go around and look at different companies, interview out what was working. And in a weird way, it just taught me a ton of how to look at go-to-market motions, messaging, positioning, and persona analysis for other types of companies. So in like a very short amount of time, I kind of got dropped into several different companies and several different environments and got to do this analysis and get trained on how do you position and message against a market. Um, so it was, it was a, a fun, you know, you, it was very diverse on what you got to do. And I loved that. It was a kaleidoscope of things. And through that, that's actually how I ended up at Anaplan um, was doing different contract work and they kind of sucked me in and recruited me in um, as a full-time employee actually. And what was your role there? I was the VP of integrated marketing. It was basically building out the marketing program there from, you know, they had, I think, 11 million in revenue when I started. So they were a series A um, and then they were just accelerating up. So the CMO brought me in as kind of the core go-to-market team on the, the marketing side. Um, and then we ended up raising, I think two rounds of a hundred million. So it was quite the ride. It was a lot of, of funding. It was a time period where Zenefits was getting a lot of funding. It was like big, big rounds. And with that came this experience of hyper growth, which is you just are hiring as fast as you possibly can. And that was quite the experience of, of the, the timeline that I had previously experienced, which was paced, suddenly got, I don't know, 5X, maybe even 10X in terms of speed. So it was just a whole different ballgame. Um, I think that taught me what total addressable market looks like. 
and what the differences were. Rich Relevance had a wonderful market it went after, but it was just significantly smaller. Anaplan was like a different beast entirely. It had such a range of what it could sell. Um, so it was also kind of just compounded learning, lots of learning there in terms of how do you grow as fast as possible, but also in a scalable way so that you you don't, you know, you, you're future focused, but also trying to address the urgent. And that was a balance that was always challenging when you're growing <clears throat> 7X in size in like 20 months. And what I thought was interesting is you had this great career trajectory in the software tech industry of heading up marketing. And then you ended up making a transition, you know, still within the industry, but in more of the venture capital world. So how did you end up becoming, you know, head of marketing and operations at Next World Capital? Well, funny story, it kind of just landed in my lap, like things do. Um, I knew one of the the general partners there. I had known him for years and he kind of pitched me this idea and I was really intrigued to jump to the other side and see um, see the VC side of the world. And so I had that experience. It was really neat because I, I did have more of an operating partner type role. So I was working with portfolio companies on marketing, but I also got to do a lot of deal activity. Like I, I wasn't closing the deals necessarily, but I was looking at them, evaluating them and learning to understand and look at, at what constituted a really good investment. And a hugely invaluable experience. And I think that, you know, I, I'm so glad I did that because it was just philosophically being able to sit around a table and look at a company and debate why, like debate, why is this a good investment? Is it a feature or is it a platform? Is this, what is, is the total addressable market true? What does the team look like? You start thinking like a VC and looking at the characteristics of a company like a VC. And it's a very different point of view than the operating side. And I'm really glad I got that kind of early. Um, and it was just, it was wonderful. I mean, I loved that group of, of GPs. They were just bright and they really were so, so thoughtful. Um, and so I got to, I got to just look at so many different companies, so many different entrepreneurs and really get a grasp of that from that side of the fence. Well, and talk about it, just a great foundation for, you know, then going off and starting your own company. So you've got marketing leadership now looking at things from the deal flow VC side of, so now like running your own company, you're so much more armed in terms of looking at things from a different lens than maybe a, an entrepreneur or first time entrepreneur may. Totally. A hundred percent. And it also made it just so much less intimidating. You know, VCs are people too. You know, it, it was just, I think you can come into it as an entrepreneur, like, oh, I'm going to give a pitch now and seeing, you know, kind of how the sausage is made on the other side, you're just like, oh, you know, they're trying to figure it out too. And so there was an idea, you know, it really changed my perspective of when you're engaging a VC or trying to be in partnership with them to help them come to a conclusion and guide them in the process because they're looking at such, I think that what really made, you can't, you can specialize as a VC, but you're still looking at a ton of range across a lot of different applications. So there's only as far deep as you can go. And there's a lot of judgment calls made and there's only so much research you can do per company. And so it is a bet at the end of the day and you're making a bet on a lot of different data points. So having, yeah, a perspective into what those data points are, how much team really matters, and it matters a great deal, as well as just a lot of different attributes of evaluation. And also looking at it from, you know, different general partners evaluate different things. 
which is really interesting. And they look at things through a different lens. And oftentimes that's informed either by their background as an operator or previous investments. And so they're kind of all trying to pattern match in a way based on a bunch of different factors. So yeah, it's it's complicated and interesting. I still love VC. I think it's so fun to just look at companies and really like take a bet on, do we think this is the next thing? Why or why not? And what, what was a win and what was a miss? Um, so yeah, huge learning experience um, for me and, and really just, you know, understanding, you know, how, how people think and how, how investments are really made. So taking more of the entrepreneurial path, was that something that was always on your radar or at what point did you think, you know, at some point I'd like to start my own company? You know, I think I had it as like in your journal somewhere on a bucket list. You're like, I want to start a company, but you don't have like a timeline. You're just like, I know I want to do this. I don't know when it's going to come to fruition, but I want to do this. This is in the future. And I think it's, you can't, you have to wait for the right idea to land and grab you. I I think that, you know, you don't want to go out looking for the idea. You kind of just, it's, it's a creative endeavor. It has to really you have to really feel conviction that this is the idea. I think that there's a lot of entrepreneurs I see backwards into it where they're like, I want to start a company and then they go look for an idea. And that that can work. I'm not saying it can't work, but sometimes you can't force the idea. You kind of, you just have to start researching and figuring it out and figure out where the hole is. And then you have to have a lot of conviction about that idea. And so, um, you know, it was happenstance a bit where Tina was a, we did a little bit of an incubator function at the VC and it was not something we traditionally did. And I partnered with Tina for, you know, a year to really think through a financial application. And we pivoted around a while and I did a ton of research and we really landed something. And the more research I did with it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a virtuous product to build. I have a lot of conviction around this. Like, I really want to see this built. It needs to be built. There's a really big hole there here in the Valley. I I call it the elephant in the room problem is everybody knows it exists, but they don't know why. Um, And they don't know how to exactly fix it. They have some idea um, because it's a cross-functional problem. And so for me, I was just like, you know, that got that niggling where I was like, I got to do this. You know, this is something that needs to be built. And that's the thing is like, I don't tend to work for companies that I don't believe in. And I think you, you have to firmly, completely, totally, insanely believe in the thing you're building as an entrepreneur. And when the things get rough, you have to have that level of conviction that this is a great idea. Um, you know, that being said, you know, you may need to pivot or adjust it. Um, I think what was really interesting about Tina and myself is there's been very little change in our plan from three years ago. And in fact, we're tracking exactly against our original plan, which is highly unusual. I I was just shaking my head like, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, literally we, we put in milestones for what we wanted to do, how it would unfold. And it is unfolding against that. And it's, it's a kind of unusual way of doing things, but I also think it's maybe the better way of doing things is you have the conviction and you've really done the preemptive research on it before you can start building. And so we had the opportunity to actually do that, which I think makes for a better company instead of, you know, and it, the other way is fine too, where you can have an idea, you put it out there and then you're like, ooh, it needs an adjustment and another adjustment and another adjustment. 
And sometimes that that isn't necessarily the case. I think with ours and the the breadth of what we're doing, which is the CPQ to billing platform, you really needed to preemptively have thought that through. This isn't one that you easily, you know, pivot, 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 pivot. You have to have the vision because it is a complex data model. So you have to know exactly what you're building, the use cases you're building for. And so she did that so thoroughly. And then I corresponded with, what is the go-to-market to get this out there? Like, what is the way into a market that has a lot of vendors um, already and a lot of different perceptions? And so, yeah, we did both of that in parallel. And I think we came out with a really good formulation of where to go in a map. And that's the map we've been tracking on. Well, you look at, you know, you and your co-founder, Tina, it's like when the VCs are thinking of the question, why is this team uniquely qualified to solve this problem? You know, not only did you have a stellar background that we just talked about, but Tina's background and the domain experience of what she has done is just spectacular. She's unparalleled. I mean, there's not, I, I can count on one hand, the people that have done five configure price quote products but then also have built billing products. So she has this unique um, background in having front end seller experience in terms of what is the sales tool going to look like, but also how does that translate into something that a finance team can use? So usually with a technologist, they've been sitting in the land of financial applications their entire life. Or vice versa, they've been in the sales side, they very rarely have like bridged both. And that creates a very unique point of view for her and a very unique understanding that what happens in sales impacts finance, what happens in sales impacts CS and product um, and impacts the whole entire company of what was initially sold. How does that translate to all of the other functions across the company? And so I think that was really what sold me was listening to her and listening to her solution to address, we probably talked to, gosh, hundred companies researching this, CFOs, like Snowflake, Zendesk, Zenith, it's all the big name companies you can think of we talked to. And she was able to distill down what seemed like disparate problems into a cohesive thesis. And it was original. Um, and so that's really what sold me was just her and then when we're working through the idea that yeah there was a path here that was really really compelling well you brought up the the term or analogy of the elephant in the room and i was just like how did this not already exist we got two silos of the crm not talking to the erp for the financial data and what's being sold on the front end the CRM. it's just like wow okay well yes this product needs to exist it's just you know, that simple. I, I was baffled too, because it just seems so obviously a need and people are throwing a lot of people and dollars and custom code at it right now. Uh, um, and here's, here's, there's a couple aspects to it. I think um, investment trends tend to come in 10 to 15 year waves. So, you know, all of the incumbents that we see, I think Salesforce CPQ, Zora is the top billing platform on the finance side. They're all coming up to this point in time of being about 10 to 15 years old. And that's usually the time where something is ripe to be, you know, find, have a newer competitor rise up. And I think the reason being is that the industry has changed. Um, you know, subscription was the cool kid on the block 10 years ago. Now, what you're seeing is, hey, traditional goods still exist. One-time services still exist. Subscription still exists. Usage is here now. How do you bring all of this together? 
And then there's another thing that's happening, which is a trend toward a converged product-led growth motion, meaning you sell on your website, you sell inside your application, but you also sell in direct sales motion. Zoom is like the poster child of this. So you have a lot of market shift. And so you have older tools, which were wonderful, but maybe weren't purpose-built for this level of complexity or this I don't know, combination of complexity. And that's where I think that things are, um, that's why it's a big elephant in the room is that everyone has kind of got the brand name tool that they could go to, but it's not quite serving the breadth of what it needed to. Um, and I, that that would be my very simplified synopsis of it, but the industry's changed and everyone's trying to get ahead of it, particularly yeah, now with the fact that we have a dynamic market and the pricing is so variable, it's actually kind of put the pressure on even further. When I think of it, uh, like 10, 15 years ago, the term RevOps was not a term. Like There wasn't a team that was called RevOps in a company. No, there wasn't. And it's really interesting because it's still a little bit of a kludgy term. Everyone's trying to wrap their head around what is RevOps. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are like, oh, it's, oh, it's sales and marketing ops. And I'm like, well, it has the word revenue in it. that's bookings that you're talking about. Revenue is a finance thing. So I think, um, you know, I've, I've been interviewing a bunch of folks for, we do these master classes. And so um, Matt Curl, who's a GM at Checker and was their head of RevOps, he thinks RevOps should actually be a C-suite function. So there should be an SVP or VP of RevOps. So that's his provocative opinion. Um, other opinions, I think broadly people are con- kind of coming around to the idea that RevOps is a squad function that covers marketing, sales, CS, finance, the whole breadth of everything. And you need to have a consistent viewpoint of what the customer journey is across your initial land of new business to expansion all the way to RevRec. And that's a broader idea of RevOps. Um, but everyone's still coming around to it. I still find a lot of folks that think it sounds like a really great title, but they're only sales ops. And they'll be like, no, I'm head of rev ops. But I'm like, well, do you work with finance? Because in my mind, if you're you're dealing with revenue, then you are rev ops. So I think it's a broader function. Um, I think another viewpoint that I really love that came out a couple of weeks ago in an interview with Craig Rosenberg, who is an analyst at Gartner and is now at Scale Ventures, He's like, I see RevOps as a mindset more than a function. And I like that terminology. It's an end-to-end mindset. So you can have it functioned or structured in many different ways. And I see it structured. There's like so many different ways RevOps and where it reports into that's variable in companies. But I think is as a company, do you have an end-to-end mindset about your customer journey? Are you looking at the data model that's passing through every function holistically. Have you thought through that journey? And that's what I would say is we're moving towards is an end-to-end definition of RevOps in an end-to-end idea that, you know, your customer journey could be really variable. You can land a customer, then you upsell them. Oh, maybe you upsell them a usage-based item. That changes things. So it's like, this is a a journey with your customer. Maybe they want to upsell themselves by logging into your application without having to call a sales rep. It's becoming, it's the tentacles of RevOps go even into product and engineering. And so that's, that's a really, that I would say it's, it's a massive shift 
But I think it's putting a label on something that's been emerging for some time. You know, the Zoom model of a direct sales plus product-led growth motion with a lot of variety of products. Zendesk is also this way. It's like, how do you actually operationalize that in a cohesive way? You really can't have siloed ops functions anymore for that. So you're solving a very complex problem and, you know, like, so how do you even get started? Like you talked, you were talking to companies like Snowflakes and lots of other companies about identifying the problem that they were having, but then you need to go build it. And hopefully some of these companies, like, are those the ones you went to first, as far as being the early adopter types that like, how do you even get started of, of building something this complex? Yeah, I think that, you know, it is a bold move to say that you're going to take on a snowflake as your first customer. That was not our move. <laughs> um, having looked at previous companies, you need to find friendlies. You need to find someone that is, is really passionate about your vision um, and have your beta customers be like, yes, we get what you're trying to do. And it's an act of faith on their part that they're going to go the ride with you. So these are folks that are usually fairly seasoned, understand the elephant in the room and are like, yeah, I got your vision. I believe in your team and I want to go the journey with you. And so we were lucky to, to get a few of these folks in from a variety of different referrals. And really, it was a lot of conversations to get the first three. And we did. And they're just huge champions. I'm so grateful for them. And these are people that like really believed in what we were doing um, and the breadth of what we were doing. Um, it's tricky to get beta customers. You need to have, like, it's not everyone that's going to be that pioneering customer that's like, yeah, I get it. And yeah, I don't want to do it the old way. I'm going to try a new way. I'm going to risk trying a new way. So um, yeah, it's, it's, we were very grateful. Um, Avail Med Systems was a, a first customer, Better Works, Demo Stack. They were all amazing, very different business models, which was great for us so that we could see a variety of use cases. So I think it was a perfect set for our, our beta customers. What were some of the lessons learned of, you know, kind of like going to market and just being like, Ooh, I wish I would have done that differently. Like you had a lot of experience with that and, and previous yeah. companies, but this was at, you know, the company that you co-founded. Yeah. Lessons learned. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, you got to pitch the the vision. I think we did that well. Um, I think that there was, it's a multi-persona sale because it's broad. So I think there's a lot of lessons learned on sales and getting the right sales strategy in place. So I think that was probably the biggest lesson learned is, you know, nailing the sales process took a lot of iteration. And um, for me, it's just learning to, you know, fall down, get back up again, try again. A lot of at-bats, if I were to put a baseball analogy on it, is like, just be okay with the fact that it may take nine tries and the 10th, you get it. Um, and there's a level of discomfort and uncertainty as you're trying, but you just have to keep at it. So that's my big lesson learned is just keep at it and keep going and you'll get there. You just chip away at the thing. And then if you have enough conviction that it needs to be there and there is product market fit, finding, you know, the strategy to get from point A to point B is totally doable. It's just a matter of, of grit and determination and experimentation. And we were convinced on point B was, was there. And so, yeah, we just kept at it. So you raised a $6 million seed round last year. Uh, so 2022. And you recently announced your seed extension of nine million. So, like, what what's the current state of the company as far as you know size, number of employees, whatever you can share, and what are the plans ahead? 
And we have about 30 employees and we're just scaling and growing and onboarding more customers. It's really about accelerating the go-to-market motion right now and the sales and marketing team. So engineering is, is, you know, building as quickly as they possibly can to build out new feature functionality as well as solidify existing. And then we are really ramping every other aspect of the company from a go-to-market motion standpoint, sales and marketing and getting after that. So um excited for this year. Um, what's really cool about our company is that you need to have this solution regardless of economy. It's a must have. And so we really have seen still a lot of just huge adoption for us and, and, and really great feedback from people who are very excited when they see it. So um, I'm, I'm excited because like, I haven't seen this since, you know, Anna plan was a moment in time where I looked at, it was, it was interesting looking at the customer feedback at that company. And it was, I'd never seen anything like it where people were were so resoundingly enthusiastic about it. And I see the same thing here. So it just that's the really the fuel that keeps me going is like, yeah, there's there's a huge fit here and people are, are wanting this. So the hiring plan, so that's mainly like sales, go to market types of positions. Sales and go to market, but we're still rounding out engineering needs, you know, as things come along, um, adding some folks here and there as, as needs arise. But yeah, it's mostly sales and marketing at the moment and accelerating that into the next round. So what's it like to work there? What's the culture like? Well, it's interesting because we're remote first. So we were born in COVID. Um, so I think it's a very different dynamic than I, I've experienced before. Usually it's like everyone's huddling in a room, making it go. And so we did have to navigate this like, oh, we're in separate places for a good chunk of the development of the company, but we're still now that way. So it's navigating a slightly different type of culture, which is more remote um, and people in different places and, and scattered around. And so we have this culture of, we're, it's incredibly smart group of people like just whip smart. Um, it's collaborative. We're very honest. We're very transparent about things. Um, and we really want to move forward as quickly as possible. So it's, it's go, 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 go. So nothing I'm saying is really honestly that dissimilar to a lot of other startups, frankly, is just, it's go, you're building a car, you're driving 70 miles on the, or hundred miles on the freeway and you're building it as you're driving. So I would say, you know, and that's every startup, it's every good startup should be hustling that hard. So we're high paced, we go, 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 but I think we're really human about it, which I'm, I'm proud of. Is there a particular uh, position that's more challenging to hire for than others? Hmm. I would say that's a question that you have to really define by the the type of company and the type of product. Um, so I it's I would say you know this is not a universal answer to all startups because I think every startup looks different depending on what you're selling, and also depending on what the needs are to implement or onboard folks. I think if if you were to ask Tina, I don't know, hopefully she won't kill me for saying this. I think she was DevOps or tech ops that was was a little bit more challenging. It also is. Is it challenging to fill the role because of the what you're looking for is rare or because of market conditions? And there's different aspects to that. Um, I think that, you know, tech talent is hard to get from an engineering standpoint. So you're always fighting that battle of like hiring engineering is, is tricky. Um, we did it really well because her network is so strong. Um, so we've, we've hired amazing engineers on the go-to-market side. I would say for us specifically, I think having a really well-rounded sales lead sales team is more challenging. It's a more sophisticated sale. 
So I think that that one has been, you know, something where we have to be very, very thoughtful um, about it because it's not just a, Hey, go find this one buyer and sell them. You're actually selling a, a, a number of folks within a company um, and not just one single person. So I would say that that may be slightly trickier, but not, not untenable in any way. So we talked about the capital you've raised. So, um, you know, we need more women and diverse founders to raise venture capital. So what, what advice do you have? I think about this a lot. Um, you know, it's the stats for women founders are really low. Um, I think it's 2% of enterprise tech has a female founder. And I would love to see that change. I think my encouragement for women is go do it. Go risk and do it. I think it's, it's really intimidating. I get it. <laughs> like I was intimidated. Um, but I would just say, get out there and do it and and risk and take the plunge. Um, and, and that's, that's, and I would say to, uh, GPs and investors out there really encourage talented women to go do it, um, and support them in it. And you need a lot of champions on both sides to say, Hey, you're qualified to do it. And you just kind of have to jump in the deep end. Um, other things, I don't know, a lot of thoughts I have on this would apply to any entrepreneur, I wouldn't make it about gender specifically, but, um, you know, raising money, just bring your authentic self to that, that game. Like it, it really is about your enthusiasm and conviction about, about the topic or the product you're building. So, um, there's an interesting Harvard study that I read and, um, it was really about why VCs chose specific entrepreneurs. And it really comes down to confidence, comfort level, and passionate enthusiasm. Everyone has these. It wasn't really about the content of the pitch or the credentials even, although I would say that does factor in. But really, are you confident? Are you comfortable with the domain you're, you're working on? And are you passionate? And that translates. And I think that that's what I would say to anyone going out there. And I think that take the plunge, go do it, find something you're convicted about and just go do it. Um, and, you know, also keep your allies close. I think we've had some wonderful investors that really see a bigger picture than not just over oh, an investment, but there's an investment in the culture of the industry. So Penny Jar, Rich and Bryant are invested in women founders. And that's huge. And they look for women founders. They want to support women founders. Um, and there are many, many people out there that feel this way and you will know when you're in the room with them and just keep them close. I would say just those are your friends. Keep them in your network. Even if they don't invest in you, keep talking to them um, and keep them close because they're invaluable. All right. So what are top three apps you can't live without? Oh my gosh. Um, I was thinking about this one. This is hard to trim down to three. <laughs> so many apps I use. I'm like, well, which function of my life? Okay, Google Maps. I'm just going to say it. It's the app okay. I use every single day. I use it mm -hmm. to figure out a biking route through San Francisco. I mean, like I use that thing for for everything. So Google Maps, um, you know, I know that sounds really basic, but uh, it's true. Um, I'd say Spotify. Can't live without my music. You know, got to have the jams. Mm -hmm. Um, this is the third one I threw in there. And it's funny because I was like staring at my phone before this being like, what do I use the most? <laughs> um, and I'm giving more personal applications here. I love Strava. 
Like that's, you know, in terms of just getting out there and like looking mm-hmm. at what I've done from an exercise st- standpoint and making sure I go exercise and having that feeling of like, even if I didn't go out the guilting of looking at Strava and being like everybody else went an exercise today, but am I out there? Um, so those are three, I mean, those aren't work applications per se, but they're definitely like my bread and butter, like life applications. Well, I applaud you for giving those answers because I should probably, when I give that question, I should probably preempt it with, it cannot be Slack, Gmail, and your calendar. Cause those are the three that I get over and over. No, you know, <laughs> I thought about know, that. Those are utilities. They're necessity. I get those, but <laughs> yours was I mean, way more interesting. Maps, borderline, borderline Google maps. But I'm like, you know what, what would I do without it? I'm like, would I go back to mm-hmm. map and like print out <laughs> <laughs> Map well uh, but yours had a theme to it it was strava and spotify they all work together succinctly to you know be healthy and exercising so yeah i could spotify i couldn't I think that. That my 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 picks are about the fact that you need to be around well-rounded human and i think i've been appreciating that more and more is that you're not just work and in fact the quality of your work is impacted by the quality of what you're doing on your downtime And I think that that's the thing I've really, you can work a million hours, but you got to balance it out to be the best person when you show up. And that's, I think, a a big realization of doing this is it's a marathon, not a race. So you need a little Spotify, a little Strava in in your life um, Mm -hmm. to, to make sure you're healthy. All right. How about a good book or podcast recommendation? So I'm sure you get a lot of Valley podcasts here. I'm going to throw a wrench in it and say, I really like armchair expert. That's my go-to. So that's Dak okay. Shepard podcast. Yep. Why I like it. Um, he does a lot of psychology interviews. Um, and then uh, it's just like a wide ranging thing um, of, you know, celebrities to, to, you know, actually he had Bill Gates on there. So there's a variety and I like the variety of it. it gets me out of the tech scene and it makes me think about other things. And he has a lot of professors on there. So, and he, he comes at it in a lay perspective and kind of dumbs it down, <laughs> which is great, but also asks provocative, very real human questions. And so that's usually my go-to is in the car. I've, I've got armchair on. I tend to avoid the, the celebrity singers, but then when I put them on, I'm like, okay, no, that had value too. So, um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because that's one that I uh, have been getting and, you know, Smartless as well, like I'm getting that a ton. So I haven't been getting those typical, you know, Valley VC podcasts or the how I built this. Like I used to always get those, but now I get these because I think they do such a great job of making it entertaining because they're entertainers, but they're also talking to really smart people and kind of boiling things down that people can understand from a, you know, just a simple level hundred and making it funny. Oh, and they're making funny. Yeah. I think the yeah. one thing about like, I like about him is there's really, I think because he's an AA guy, he just mm-hmm. brutal honesty is kind of the tenor of the podcast. So he asks questions that you oftentimes when you're listening to a podcast, you're like in your head, you're like, I kind of wish they'd ask this question, but then they're never bold enough or they don't go there. And every time I have a thought in my head of like, Ooh, this would be a, a provocative question. He just goes there. And so I'm like, I, I find it, there's just, there's not a, some he had he's just a really incredible interviewer and so I'm oftentimes listening to him and like oh wow that was you did that in such a way of being non-offensive <laughs> but asking a really bold question yeah well I think it goes along the theme of you know humor is good and people need more humor in their lives like someone recently on my podcast recommended a business book called humor seriously and 
I, I just started listening to it and it's great. And it totally gets to the point where it's just like, world's too serious. Uh, when we're like four years old, we smile and laugh 400 times a day. Yet when we're like, we're lucky if we get 400 smiles and laughs over two and a half months when we're, you know, 23 on up. And it's just like, you hear that and you're like, yeah, that's a good point. And then, so I'm, I'm excited to listen to the rest of the book. So I don't, I don't know exact, cause I think they have different things to help you. Cause their whole point is like, you don't have to be a comedian and, you know, no stand up to be successful in what we're trying to project here. But the whole theme of like, yeah, the world needs more humor. <laughs> so, so I oh, think well. those podcasts are good examples of why they do so well. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that you have to bring that to work as well and mm -hmm. just really bring some play to it. And that's something I'm really trying to work at is how do you bring play to this thing and make it fun instead of, you know, you're right. Like when we're four, we're just laughing. We have a good time. Like, where does that go? Right. Exactly. <laughs> in play. I mean, and make it keep it, the humanity there. But wait, humor seriously? Is that Should I go? Yeah. I'm going to keep that in my yep. back pocket. Humor seriously. I'll send you an email with a, a link to it. And I'll include a link to this in the show notes for, for others to check it out. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, you already kind of give a, an answer to this, but I'll ask again. So what, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? I, um, anything outdoors. Um, I think when you work indoors, you just want to get out. So, um, you know, even yesterday I went on what was supposed to be a seven mile hike, which was actually 15, um, so I love hiking. Um, I love cycling. Um, Barry is incredible for cycling and just getting on a bike. You just have a different perspective of the world and the pacing of things. So those are two top things. Um, you know, you could extrapolate, yeah, camping, you know, all of that stuff I I'm down and I live in a perfect place for it. So I'm appreciative. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, your professional journey, obviously all the great work you and the team at Newer are up to, and of course, all the great advice. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.